Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to study your word, to sing praises to you. And Lord, today as we study Romans 7 and Romans 8, we pray that you would speak to us. May the Holy Spirit apply the truths that we need specifically to our situation, our hearts this morning. Speak to us, we pray, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Today we want to touch on two chapters in Paul's writings, Romans 7 and Romans 8. And before we do that, I wanted to give a little bit of a bigger picture in relationship to the Spirit's work. And this is from the book, Steps to Personal Revival. And by the way, the conference gave us 100 copies, so I'll be there at the back door. I'll have a box of them if you want a free copy. I highly recommend this book. It changed my life, changed the lives of many individuals in relationship to um, their spiritual life and their walk with Christ. And the Bible differentiates between three groups of people in respect to their personal relationship with God. The first group full, real relationship. The Bible calls this a spirit-filled Christian, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. The Bible indicates that we're spiritual vessels, and we have the potential to be filled with different spirits, and I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Not any other spirit, but the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, remember Jesus said to his disciples, he is now with you, the Holy Spirit, but will be in you. So the Holy Spirit goes from the alongside position to the in position. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside a person, there are certain things that come outside of a person. When the Holy Spirit comes inside, there's other things that are visible outside. And these are the visible fruit of the Spirit. Notice it doesn't say fruits, but this is the fruit of the Spirit. These are different than spiritual gifts. You can have the gift of preaching or the gift of teaching or the gift of hospitality, but these fruit, you can't say, I don't have the gift of love, pastor. I'm just not, that's not my gift. Uh, I'm not a joyous person. I'm not a patient person. That's not my gift. But here it says, this is the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. So when the Holy Spirit comes inside, there are certain things that are manifest outside. Fruit. You're, you become a more loving and lovable Christian. You're more kind. You're more patient. Uh, more goodness, faithfulness. And we can all use self-control. And this is an artist's depiction of the fruit that is visible and manifest. Now, when you plant an apple seed, you don't go the next day and pick apples. There is a progression in this. So when the Holy Spirit comes inside, this is a progressive, gradual process. So when you have the root, when you're rooted in the Spirit, you will have the fruit of the Spirit. Amen? So the key is not to say, today I'm going to try to be a more loving person, although that's a good aim. I'm not saying we shouldn't try. But the real heart of the issue is we should get up every morning and say, help us to be, help me to be connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's where the battle lies. Help me today to be connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And when you're connected, you will have the fruit, even unconsciously sometimes. 
you will be a loving and lovable Christian by the grace of God. So that is the first category. That's the category we all want to be in. And then the second category is no relationship with God. And the Bible calls this the natural man. This is a person that has no connection with God. And just as the fruit of the Spirit is a visible manifestation of the Spirit being on the inside, this category reveals the visible manifestations of individuals that have an absence of the Spirit on the inside. So here is a person that doesn't have the Spirit of God inside, and there are other visible manifestations. And I read this list, and I'm like, wow, this is quite a list. Notice the fruit of the Spirit is just a few of them. But here in Galatians chapter 5, the same chapter that deals with the fruit of the Spirit gives a a list of individuals, or not list of individuals, list of characteristics that are visible manifestations of the absence of the Spirit. Here they are. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's the list of things that, that come out when we don't have the Spirit in our lives. And some of those things on that list, I'm just like, wow, that's pretty out there, like sorcery, um, murder. Oh, wow. But there's other things in there that I'm kind of like, ouch. Like, uh, how about jealousy? You ever been jealous before? No. Ever been envious? Uh, what about selfish? Wow, that's, that's tough. So you can see some of these things are more heinous, others are more innocuous, but these are visible manifestations of the absence of the Spirit. There's another thing that happens when we don't have the Spirit on the inside, is that it affects our morality, as we've just seen in Galatians chapter 5, but according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14, the Bible indicates that it also affects our spiritual perception. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So when we don't have the Spirit, we can't understand spiritual things, according to Paul. It affects our morality and our spiritual perception as well. Now, very quickly here, we come to our third category, and the third category is kind of halfway in between the first category and the second category. In the book of Revelation, it calls this the lukewarm Christian. Not hot, not cold, just kind of in between there. And this third category is the divided relationship, and the Bible calls this the carnal Christian. Now, that sounds kind of like an oxymoron, and you may be like, oh, pastor, you're just making that up. A carnal Christian? That's not possible. But here, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing to Christians, the believers in Corinth, and he calls them carnal. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, as to, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for even now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, 
Are you not carnal? So here Paul's speaking to the church and he says, there's a group of you that are carnal Christians. Or he says the entire church is a carnal Christian uh, or exhibiting and manifesting elements of being carnal. So this is the halfway point and it has certain characteristics that come out in the Christian life. Now, I want you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. Now, we've just touched on the three different categories that the Bible portrays, full relationship with God, having the fruit of the Spirit. The second one is the absence of the Spirit, and the third one is kind of halfway in between. We talked about how in the Corinthian church it manifested itself in in the congregation. But here in Romans chapter 7, we have what the experience of a carnal Christian is like. And Paul uses the first person, and it's fascinating because he obviously had experienced this as well. And if you notice in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, in 1 Corinthians, he was talking about the visible manifestations in how it affected the community of faith, but here in Romans chapter 7, he talks about the internal experience or the existential experience of what it's like to be a carnal Christian on the inside. So let's pick it up in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to try to read these verses here. It's almost a a tongue twister. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present within me, but how to perform it is the good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And I just wanted to summarize it here in verse 15. For what I will, and I like this from this different translation. It's a little bit more clear for me anyway. Romans seven fifteen. for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, uh, I didn't copy it correctly, that I do. There it is, okay? But what I hate, that I do. Now, I think all of us can relate to this. Do you have something in your life, a habit, an addiction, some secret thing that you hate? kind of a love-hate relationship, isn't it? You're like, I'm never going to do this again. Ever, ever, ever. You know, January 1's coming close. Well, relatively. January 1, New Year's resolution. I'm never going to eat this again. Right? Just innocuous. I'm not going to eat 10 candy bars in one night. Ever again. And then you... And then you keep that, and then you go through a stressful situation, and then you go on this binge and eat 10 candy bars in one night, and then you just feel awful, and then you're like, you, you hate that you did that. And I think all of us can relate to that. There, there are certain things in our lives that we struggle with. Addictions. Things that we say, I'm never going to do this again, and then yet we are on this cycle of doing it over and over over and over and over again, and we feel all types of shame and 
The devil comes to us and says, how can you be a Christian and do this? You know, all these doubts and thoughts start coming into the mind. And by the way, there is grace in this process, amen? The Lord never gives up on us. But this is kind of the internal dialogue that we go through. The things that you want to do, you don't do. You say, I'm going to get up and pray and read my Bible every day. And then you do it for a little bit and you don't do it anymore. I'm not going to eat that candy bar again, 10 of them, one night. And then you end up falling into that. And so you're kind of in this, in this state. And you notice how Romans 7 ends. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I believe that many Christians have never gone from Romans 7 to Romans 8. I believe that many Christians today are stuck in Romans 7. And the beauty of what Paul is doing in in his description of the gospel is indicating that even though at a point in your experience you may have a Romans 7 experience, that there is a way out into what we call a victorious Christian life. The Lordship of Christ in our lives. Now, there is a book on Amazon.com, Stop Me Because I Can't Stop Myself. And I want to read a quote from that. I feel guilty about what I'm doing, but I can't stop. Whenever I get these urges, nothing seems to relieve them except for gambling. If I don't get to the casino when I have these urges, maybe my wife asks me to do something or a family emergency comes up. I feel incredibly anxious. I get very irritable. The way I treat my wife and family is sometimes horrible. I leave them alone for hours. I lie to them. I cancel family plans, and it's all due to gambling. The amount of energy, time, and money I spent gambling has me shaking my head in disgust. I look back and wonder how I could have lived this way. The disease controls you, not the other way around. I know I'm ruining my career, and I just can't stop my behavior. You have ever had something like that in your life? It's just consuming you. And you know that you should stop. But you can't. What you, you can't. I, wh- what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. These are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So, so inside of us, there are these two entities There is your higher powers, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and then your lower powers. And after the fall, every person born on planet Earth is born with a predisposition to sin, a sinful nature. We all inherit that from Adam and Eve, and then down through the ages, from our parents, our grandparents. We all are the omnibus on which our ancestors ride, as, as HMS Richard said. So we have these two things, our carnal nature and our spiritual nature. And here Ellen White, in the book Adventist Home, by the way, I recommend Adventist Home for young families to read, 127, 128, she says that the lower passions have their seat in the body and work through it. The words flesh or fleshly or carnal lust embrace the lower corrupt nature. 
The flesh of itself cannot act contrary to the will of God. All animal propensities are to be subjected to the higher powers of the soul. Now, let me pick it apart with you a little bit. Essentially, what Adventist Home is saying is that she puts different names to what Paul says is the spirit and the flesh. And here it is. She uses the term higher powers. These are conscience and reason. You know, in the prefrontal cortex, this is where conscience and reason reside. And she says this is the higher powers. And, and this is what separates us from animals. Right here, the prefrontal cortex. Conscience, reason, morality. Right here in the, in the forehead. Now, she says that the higher powers are to rule the lower passions. And she describes this in terms of appetite, sexuality, and she calls these the animal propensities. Now, there is nothing wrong inherently with appetite and sexuality. But what she says happened in the fall of Adam and Eve is that after the fall, now, let me just say, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve, these things were in balance. The kingly powers of conscience and reason, the higher powers, were holding the lower passions in subjection. Give me give you an innocuous example of this. You know, Adam's going through the day, all right, and he notices a beautiful fruit hanging in the garden, and uh, he looks at that fruit, and his appetite tells him, oh, I should eat that fruit. But then the conscience, the reason kicks in and says, oh, Adam, you just ate a huge meal before this. You don't need that. And Adam goes, you're right. Puts his hand down, just keeps on walking in the garden. That's the way that Adam operated prior to the fall. After the fall, what happened was that this was reversed. Like this. So that the lower powers ruled the higher powers. The appetite, sexuality, and animal propensities ruled over conscience and reason. But not only that, not only was it flipped upside down, but then the lower passions became twisted, perverted. A perverted appetite, perverted passions. And so before the fall, it was the higher powers ruling the lower powers. After the fall, it got upside down and then, and then twisted. Now, I want to read this quotation here from Mind, Character, and Personality, page 224. In the place of the mind being developed and having the controlling power, the animal propensities rule over the higher and nobler powers until they are brought into subjection to the animal propensities. And so, so this is what's happened after the fall. Every person born into this world has the tendency, apart from the Spirit of God, to have the animal propensities, okay, appetite, you know, passions, all right, these will rule over the higher powers. And this is what we inherited because of sin. And with every generation, those animal propensities are becoming more and more perverted down through the ages. And this is what we come into this world with. We come with baggage. Anyone born here with baggage? Don't raise your hand. Things that you've inherited? We all have this. And this is, this is the issue. Now, what happens after, at conversion? Conversion is the changing of mind. And what God does through his spirit is he turns this back around. 
That is where Romans 8 comes in. Now, according to God's Amazing Grace, page 256, it says that the higher powers of being are to rule. The passions are to be controlled by the what? By the will, which is itself to be under the control of whom? Under God. All right, so here is another element that she adds. So you have the higher powers and the lower powers, but she adds that there's another element that is given to every human being, and this is free will, the freedom of choice. And free will is, a, is the determining factor in how we relate to this, this imbalance that we're all born into this world with. And notice where she says that the will is to be given. The will is to be given to God. Now, I'll tell you how many people, how, how many times people have, have indicated that, that they deal with the will, okay, their power of choice, and then they try to, to through self-discipline, uh, follow the higher powers. And it may work for a little bit, but uh, there, there, is, there is no way out of this through willpower, just trying to, you know, subject this to this and going on these, these, uh, these, uh, these, checklist uh, and discipline, you know, uh, go off to a monastery somewhere and and just try to, through sheer willpower, conquer whatever addiction that we're dealing with. But in this this dynamic of the will, I want to read this quote from the book Steps to Christ, page 47. It says, everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve him. And I've underlined this part. You can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And this is where the battle lies. If you have something in your life that you're really struggling with and you can't beat, the key is you give your will to God. See, the battle is not really here. The battle is here to give your will to God. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane. What did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. This is the struggle right here. God does not expect us to just pull ourselves by our own bootstraps and say, look, I'm going to conquer this addiction. I'm going to walk in the higher powers and not in the lower passions. That is not where the battle lies. The battle lies when you get on your knees before God and say, Lord, I love this addiction. I enjoy it. But help me to hate it. I give you my will. That's the most powerful thing that you can do. You give God your will. This is, this is foundational for a victorious Christian life. This is where the Lordship of Christ begins. On your knees. Not trying to fight this addiction in your own power, but you say, Lord, I can't do this. I give you my will. The most powerful thing that you can do in your relationship with God is, are those words of consent. God won't intervene. He won't impinge on your free will. But if you say, Lord, I give you my will, God's like, that's all, that's all I needed. I needed that authorization. I, I have all the resources in this situation, but I need authorization to come in. And when you say, Lord, I give you my will, God says, I've got the authorization. I have the clearance 
to access, to come in right here. Now let's go to Romans chapter 8 because you, you need to remember that these chapters were given to us uh, for our convenience so that we can find texts in the Bible easier. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul continues on from his discussion in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. When you give God your will, there is something miraculous that happens. I've seen individuals that were addicted to things that makes the heart tremble. They were in a place in their life where no matter amount, the amount of therapy and psychotherapy and clinics, it, nothing was working, and they were in a dark place in their life. And today, they are a new creature in Jesus. And it began with the surrender of their will to God. They give their will to God, and there's something miraculous that happens, and I can't explain it. You give your will to God, and Romans 8, verse 2 says that Christ then sets you free. Amen? I mean, do you want freedom from whatever is ailing you in your life? It's like you're in chains. Christ can set you free. So this is what happens. I, I've tried to draw this as a diagram on the screen to help us to see this visually. So here, here's what happened. You give God your will. You said, Lord, I give you my will. I can't do this in my own power. I give you my will. Then God empowers us by the Holy Spirit, and according to Romans chapter 8, verse 3, frees us from bondage to the lower passions. That's what takes place. You give God your will. God says, I have authorization. I have access. Romans 8, verse 2. Then he frees us from the addictions and, and the bondage that is there. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that power. The resurrection power, according to Romans 8, that raised him from the dead is there, available to you. When you give God your will, he empowers us by the Spirit and frees us from the lower passions. Here it is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Amen. That's what it means to die daily. It's not easy to die. And where that dying takes place is when you say, Lord, I give you my will. Then he can go and crucify, put to death the passions and desires of the sinful nature. Let's read on in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on the account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here's what happens. The Bible says that now you can walk in the flesh and not according to the Spirit. Here, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, comes and gives us freedom from the lower passions. 
after that freedom, what happens in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, according to the scriptures? He gives us that freedom and empowers us by the Holy Spirit to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. That is what Romans 8 is telling us. We give our will to God. God says, okay, I'm in. I have access. I have authorization. I have clearance. I'm going to give you freedom from that addiction. I'm not only going to give you freedom. Now I'm going to empower you through the Holy Spirit to live a victorious life. Amen. Empower you to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. There is victory in Jesus. Amen. There's power. There's, there's, there's a notion out there that, that, that gives the impression that sin is so powerful that even God can't give you the victory. That's not true, friends. Jesus can give you the victory over every area of your life. And this is how it happens. Through the Holy Spirit, you give God your will. God says, I have clearance, I have authorization. The Holy Spirit comes inside, gives you freedom from your lower passions. And then he says, I'm going to give you power to walk in the newness of life. This is the transformation of the gospel. The victorious Christian life involves giving your will to God. Giving your will to Jesus every single day. This is what it means to die daily. It's not easy to give your will to God because I like to control. I like to have my fingers in everything. But once we say, Lord, not my will, but thine, I give you my will, God, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a victorious Christian life. This book, Steps to Personal Revival, talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you don't have this, a copy of this book, um, we'll have copies there in the back. I want to encourage you to read this book, Practical Christian Living. The Holy Spirit, given by faith, according to the book Desire of Ages, brings all other blessings in its train. The book of Ephesians indicates that the Holy Spirit, when given to us, is the embodiment of the Godhead in us. The Holy Spirit, given by faith, when it comes into us, is the power, Trinitarian power, in our lives. And we cannot live without spiritual power. Amen? We need His grace. I want to close with this quote from one of my favorite books, Steps to Christ. I refer to this quote often. Many are inquiring, how am I to make surrender of myself to God? You give yourself to Him. You desire to give yourself to Him. But you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve Him. You can give Him your will. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit 
of Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, our prayer is not my will, but yours be done. Lord, we are tired of trying to beat this thing by ourselves. We are weary, but we reach out to you today, saying, Lord, help us to be willing to be made willing. Give us the desire to desire. And Lord, whatever situation we may be in, no matter how hopeless it may seem, we pray that you would touch our hearts today. May we reach out to you. And Lord, if there's someone here today that wants to say, Lord, I want to give you my will today. I want to invite you to raise your hand today while you still have a chance, while you're still alive. I want to give you my will today. Only you can do it. No one can do it this for you. This is your decision, your choice. Father, you see these hands. Lord, these hands symbolize every individual in this room's desire to give you authorization to come in with illimitable power to work in our lives. Thank you for this gift. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.